Grandpa said never to go in the greenhouse. Written by Kyle Harrison Last year was really difficult for my Grandpa Jack. First, he had a stroke in mid-May, and then our Grandma Bella got sick with the virus in September. She died a few weeks later, and it hit him really hard. I know the two of them were married, going on almost 54 years, so I can't even imagine losing your best friend after all that time together. Anyway, he relied on Mama for everything, so when she was gone, it was my dad who suggested that us kids step in and step up. Grandpa is about 76 now and not getting any younger. We can at least check on him daily, help with errands and housework. My brother Matt and I immediately volunteered. When Dad had to go out of state for work as kids, Grandpa and Mama were always there to take care of us, so this just felt like we were giving back to them. I said that I would stop by on Mondays and Tuesdays, and Matt said that he would handle the rest. I agreed to let him take the bulk of the work also because I work around hospital patients all day and didn't want to risk getting my grandpa sick either. Plus, not to mention the drive to get my grandpa was a lot farther for me. I didn't want to tell dad it was too much, but I did find a way for him to PayPal me some gas money in exchange for assisting grandpa. When I got to grandpa's property, I couldn't believe how much it had changed since the last time I had been there. There was a lot of cleanup to do around the yard, projects that had obviously not been finished from years gone by. The lawn needed mowing, and the acquired junk that was sitting around the grass clearly needed sorting through. The most striking change was the greenhouse. Grandpa had always loved his plants and been saying for years that he would eventually build one. I just never saw him doing it. The thing was fairly large, at least the size of a small house. 25 feet, maybe bigger just from looking at it. It was clear, though, that the greenhouse was where he was devoting most of his time now. And even when I pulled up, I could see him trotting out of the enclosure toward his main house, humming. I could see from this far away that he had just been on his knees digging in the dirt. And it looked like he had cut his right hand because he had wrapped a bit of his shirt around it to absolve the wound. When he spotted me, he waved and called for me to come help him with a wheelbarrow. Amy, is that you? My, how you've grown. He said as he pushed the old wheelbarrow around to his tool shed. You don't look too bad yourself, I said. I hugged him immediately, too overcome with emotion to be worried about distance protocols. Except for this, of course. I said, gesturing towards his damp hand that had dried blood on it. Oh, it's just a scrape, he said dismissively. Have you been alright otherwise? I asked, deciding not to tackle that argument right now. Oh, you know me, I like to keep busy. Just bought myself a new exercise machine in the den, a Peloton or something. I saw it in one of those catalogs, he said. I resisted the urge to chuckle and had him guide me inside to show me. His house looked like it needed some TLC to be sure, and as he was explaining how his new machine worked, I was making a mental list of things that I would need to be doing. So, what brings you all this way, girl? He asked. 
Well, I, I just wanted to come and check on you. See if you needed anything. Matt will be by tomorrow to do the same. We don't want you pushing yourself too hard. He had this wicked laugh that reminded me of Santa Claus and remarked, Are you trying to tell me that I'm old? Well, you aren't getting any younger, I admitted. He seemed a bit miffed by the idea of having supervision. I could understand his frustration. He had been in two wars. Why now all of a sudden did he have to be treated like a child? But I wasn't budging and he knew it. Fine. But if you're going to stick around then, you have to obey my rules. You and Matthew both, you hear? I promised that I would for the both of us and made a mental note to remind Matt to respect what Grandpa told me. Most of it was pretty petty stuff. Like not to open his mail or don't be forcing him to eat certain foods. But then above all else, he stressed that no one but him was allowed to go into the greenhouse. Nobody in this family has a love for plants like me. And I don't want any of you to contaminate what I'm growing in there with your negative auras. He remarked. I told him that I would listen. And honestly, I intended to keep my word. I couldn't see him getting into any harm in the greenhouse. But Matt wasn't too thrilled when I relayed the information to him. He really shouldn't be bending over, moving things, or even trying to dig in the soil like he used to six years ago or even four years ago. He told me. Dad was in agreement, and I felt a little foolish to not even considering any of that. I would feel bad at going back on my promise. I admitted to both of them. Well, you'll just have to. He's already hurt himself once this last week, Dad said. I recalled the bandaged hand and felt awful not realizing how dangerous it could be. Dad reminded me that Grandpa was on blood thinners, so another scrape like that could be deadly. If you just calmly talk about whatever he's doing in the greenhouse and offer to do it in his steed, I'm sure that'll come around. Matt reasoned and reminded me that Grandpa tended to listen to me more. I intended to do just as they had asked, but Jack wouldn't hear it. In fact, when I even suggested helping out with the greenhouse, he became angry. You think a few simple plants are going to hurt me because of a little cut, he muttered. He was furious and I was sure he was going to insist that I leave if I brought it up again. At least not until I softened him up a bit. What do you have to do in there that's so special that I might mess it up? I teased him the week after that when he was in a good mood. No, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, girly. It's miraculous. Well, maybe you could show me. I asked him. I was hoping to coax him into letting me inside, but the plan backfired. Instead, he grabbed the keys to the greenhouse and berated me for even suggesting it. Just let me go work on my plants in peace, he shouted. I was beginning to get the impression that his obsession with the greenhouse and keeping it safe was bordering on bizarre and that only heightened my curiosity. And so I waited. Later that afternoon when he returned and I offered him a hearty meal and we sat down to watch one of his favorite programs, Bonanza. 
I used the opportunity to let him relax and drift into a nap. And then I decided to go check out the greenhouse for myself. Finally, I found the right one and entered the damp hothouse. Inside, it was just as chaotic as I had imagined. There were all sorts of plants from ferns to geraniums to bamboo groves. He had a virtual menagerie of wild flora in this place, but most of it looked like it was being poorly maintained. I walked about the plastic-covered, environmentally controlled building, trying to figure out why he was so fixated on this place, when I heard something that I will never forget. It was this mixture of a high-pitched whistle and a soft scream, like a final gasp of air was hissing out of a sealed lid. It was coming from the most exotic plant I had ever seen, the only apparent living thing in the entire greenhouse. It looked like some sort of orchid, a massive blooming blend of bright red thorns and swirling petals to bring together a strange network of gourd-shaped mouths that looked like they were used for capturing nectar. It was both beautiful and deadly all at once, and I couldn't help but be drawn to the unique flower. As I got closer, I noticed that it seemed to be moving, and I had to actually do a double take to be sure that I wasn't seeing things. When I took another step, I confirmed it. The writhing organism was actually responding to my movements. I couldn't help but to become overcome with excitement. I was no botanist, but I knew I had never seen a plant so exquisite and unique before. This was the discovery of the century, perhaps even of my lifetime. I immediately wondered why Grandpa Jack had not been keen to sell this and solve his money problems. And then I heard the sound of footsteps behind me, and I realized he was coming. Immediately, I hid in the groves behind the massive flower, watching from the thicket as Grandpa entered the greenhouse. He looked a little flustered and confused perhaps wondering where his keys were, but then his eyes focused entirely on the flower. Good evening, darling. I brought you something fresh to eat. He said as he moved over toward the wheelbarrow and dumped out a bag of fertilizer. Except it wasn't fertilizer at all. It looked like chopped up meat. To my shock, the plant's vines eagerly extended and pulled in the nutrients from the bloody meat. I felt like I was suddenly watching a deleted scene from Little Shop of Horrors, and I realized immediately that my grandfather was the caretaker for a dangerous life form. It's getting harder to find strays these days. Might have to turn to other means to feed you soon. He commented as the plant finished its meal and he cleaned up. I was broken about how fixated he was on serving this bizarre carnivorous flower, trying to understand his passion. I couldn't let blinders confuse me about what I knew I would need to do. As soon as he left, I followed and decided to call Matt immediately with a plan. Whatever this thing was, I knew it needed to be destroyed before Grandpa decided to let it start feeding on human flesh and grow beyond his control. I drove away and explained the situation to Matt over the phone. I don't think I've ever known him to be so speechless, but this definitely felt like it was such an occasion.
Wow. So it's like an alien or something, he gasped. It's not natural, that's for sure. I told him. Alright, I'll check it out tomorrow. Be safe, I warned. The next day, I decided to go up there anyway and give Matt backup, in case Grandpa tried to cause problems. Thankfully though, his nurse was at the house giving him his weekly checkup, which gave me time to show Matt the greenhouse. When he saw the strange bulbous flower, he admitted that he was stomped. I've never seen anything like it, but it's certainly freaky, he agreed. He's been feeding it meat, steak, and stray animals. I swear it's the freakiest and most frightening thing I've ever seen, I admitted. We need to destroy it, Matt decided. He made his way to Grandpa's tool shed and ordered me to watch the door. His nurse could be finished at any time. He returned a few minutes later with a blowtorch and started it up, telling me to stand back. And then he began to burn the creature. It started to scream loudly, and I heard Grandpa holler in surprise up at the house. Hurry, Matt, he's on his way, I told my brother. I saw Grandpa Jack rushing towards me, like the devil himself was inside him. I stood my ground and held him back as Matt kept torching the plant, trying to get every part of the bizarre creature. No, you have to stop, Grandpa screamed. This thing is too dangerous. You could be hurting people, I said, trying desperately to knock sense into him. It didn't make sense to me at first why he was protecting this monstrous creation. And then he said one word that made me feel paralyzed. Bella. Immediately, I froze and he pushed past me. He tried to tackle Matt, but it was already too late. Most of the plant was withering and gone by this point. Grandpa fell to the greenhouse floor and started to sob as he frantically picked up the dying blossoms. No, not after all I went through. No. I felt my mouth go dry as his words at last registered in my foggy brain. Bella, the name of our grandmother. This creature, this bizarre, beautiful flower, it had been her. You... Both of you are no longer welcome here. He screamed between bitter tears. Grandpa, whatever you were doing, it wasn't right. It wasn't natural. This couldn't have brought her back. I tried to tell him as Matt suddenly began to understand what was going on. She was here. I heard her. She was in the soil. She had a chance to be reborn. Grandpa told us. We had to physically drag him out of the greenhouse, kicking and screaming. Matt managed to subdue him as I called Dad, and he made the decision to get Grandpa moved to a nursing home. The assisted living is for the best. He just can't care for all this anymore, and he needs 24-7 care, Dad said. We didn't mention anything about the plant. A week later, Matt and I were there to clean still reeling from the strange experience and trying to pick up the pieces, when I decided to breach the subject by glancing at the greenhouse. Do you really think it was possible that thing was Grandma? I asked. 
It frightened me to no end that not only had Grandpa cheated death, but that we had possibly had a part in destroying Frankenstein's monster. I wanted to know, how could such a thing be possible? Was it even probable in our world? Science didn't make sense. But then nothing about the plant seemed grounded in the reality I understood. Even if it was, it wasn't the same woman we knew, Matt decided. I told myself that he was right and tried to push the thought from my mind. But eventually, my steps took me there and I looked down at the dead foliage and felt just as defeated and sad as Grandpa. Maybe it hadn't been as dangerous as I thought. Maybe we had been the real evils here and a place where nature was trying to rekindle a love between two souls. Amid the ashes, as I stood there contemplating all of this, I saw the movement of a small, delicate vine, a survivor from the blaze. I reached down and touched the wondrous creation, marveling at it, and wondering if all the possibilities that it held. It rested a petal on me, and I could almost hear a faint whisper or a sigh, like it was talking to me. The next day, I visited Grandpa in the community. I told him that I was bringing a gift. At first, he didn't seem too interested. But when he saw the green buds peeking from the top of the pot, his whole face lit up. I let him hold the plant in his hands and watched as he gently sang a tune that he and his late wife had memorized to each other. I didn't have the heart to tell him that what I brought was just an ordinary houseplant that I had snuffed out the last remnant of his devil's work the day before. I told myself it was better this way, to let him live a lie than to hurt himself or others. I told myself that I could forgive myself for killing what might have been the last of my grandmother, rather than know the secrets he used to bring her back. We all say we want the answers, but in the end, it's the lies that help us sleep at night. I've been exploring caves for a long time. Here's why I quit. Written by Mr. Mills 45. It takes a lot for a person to give up on a lifelong hobby and passion. Never once in my life did I ever think that I would be sitting down and telling the internet the incidents that made me quit the most fun, exciting, and overall adrenaline-pumping experience I ever had in my life. I've been cave exploring since I was in middle school. It started out as just another one of those childish, teenage dares everyone has experienced in their lives. A few friends and I simply wandered around back and forth in this creepy old coal mine entrance, just a couple of miles away from our school at the time. We didn't find much but that didn't stop this spark lighting up inside of me. I wanted to do it again. No matter how much my friends had teased and picked on me for it, there was something about the mysterious unknown of caves that intrigued me. I never really understood why some people are so freaked out about them. Until now. The first mishap was several years back. I had packed everything for a seemingly normal trip. A bottle of water, a machete, and a flashlight. 
A rope was wild in case I needed to change elevation. All the usual materials that I needed. If you encounter any monsters, give me a call. My wife would always sarcastically announce before I stepped out the door. My wife didn't share the love of my admittedly dangerous hobby. I didn't blame her. She cheered me on from a distance though. However, I wasn't fond of the idea of taking her with me. If something went wrong, I would rather have only me get hurt rather than have the both of us go down. I wouldn't be able to deal with that kind of guilt. The drive there already had gave me some strange vibes. I felt like I was being watched the whole time. It really threw me off because I've never had the feeling, even when inside the deepest and darkest of caves, let alone just driving to them. I foolishly brushed it off as me just having an off day at the time, and kept on as if nothing was different at all. That's how I dealt with a lot of problems. This trip's cave was well over 30 miles away from my house in the beginning of a desert. The place looked even more barren than when I had originally scoped the place out to see if it would be a good fit. The dusty entrance of the cave sat at around 8 feet tall and 10 feet wide. Inside, the natural walkway was pitch black. It's like darkness was pouring out into the rest of the planet from it. That wasn't odd to me though. Most entrances I had come across were usually like that. On either side of the entrance sat an array of rotting cactuses protruding up from the sand. They looked ancient, and almost as if they were on the edge of death. I made my way over, giving the entrance one more firm glance before kneeling down to reach into my backpack to retrieve my machete and flashlight. I stepped inside and began my expedition. Letting the darkness engulf me as I marched forward. Immediately, a powerful scent of iron singed my nostrils enough to make my facial expression turn sour. My first assumption of where it came from was the corpse of an animal. The smell was obnoxiously overwhelming. I waved my hand in front of my face in a pointless attempt to waft the stench away. Something definitely died in here, I complained still pressing forward nonetheless. Turning my flashlight on to see if I could spot the source of the foul order, I dragged my flashlight beam around the floor, the ceiling, and walls only to see nothing but decent-sized spiderwebs elegantly strung up in the corners. Along with the centipedes that all retreated back into the cracks of the rock upon being spotted by me. I only went on for about a hundred more feet beyond that point when I was contemplating giving up and either going home, or finding a different location when that same potent stench of iron returned. This time, it was so powerful that I could nearly taste it on my tongue. I pointed my flashlight down at the floor and spotted a long, continuous trail of blood leading to some sort of drop-off 20 feet in front of me. What happened here? I said out loud. I paused, taking a glance over my shoulder to be sure the coast was clear before I followed the blood. The thought going through my mind was that some desert coyote had gotten a hold of some unfortunate prey item and dragged it down here to feast. I stopped where the blood did, pointing my flashlight down what appeared to be about a 10 foot drop into an empty, 
circular-shaped and eerie expanse. At the bottom of the drop-off was a note. The text itself was a crimson red written in a sloppy formation. The same blood on the floor had been used to create the note. I got on my rope, tying one end around my waist and the other one around a sturdy-looking chunk of rock, sticking out from the wall that I had been standing next to. Descending into the small abyss, I immediately looked around and kept my guard up, letting my left hand firmly grip itself around the machete as I picked up the note with my right. Once I had a hold of the paper, I quickly ascended back up and hoisted myself up over the edge of the drop-off. I grabbed my flashlight, pointed it at the note and began to read with an intrigued smirk. This is the end for me. I should have listened to everyone. My veins are draining and I don't have much time left. That thing is going to come back here and finish me off any minute now. It can smell blood and here I am drenched in it. To whoever finds this, please bring this message to my family. My wife's name is Anne. The ending of the writing was suddenly cut off. Blood had been smeared massively across the bottom of the paper. I didn't know how to react at first. After all my experience of doing this, nothing had been able to raise my level of paranoia like that note had. You remember that feeling of being watched that I mentioned while driving here? It was increased to tenfold after I had completed reading what was on that piece of paper. I didn't run or book it. Even though it had been a short trip, I decided to pack it up for the day and leave after that. People can be quite loopy in their final moments. I chalked up the thing he was talking about to a desert coyote or something like that. That's what it had to be. Poor guy. I huffed as I exited the cave. I left the note behind, however. Most might call me an idiot for doing so, but for me personally, it would have felt disrespectful to take something from his grave, despite the lack of an actual body being down there. When I got home that night, my wife could tell that something was up with me and continuously probed to get to the bottom of why I was so quiet that evening. I just told her that I got chased by a couple of desert coyotes, and it spooked me pretty hard. The look on her face in response told me that she was having trouble buying that answer, but refused to keep digging. I silently thanked her in the back of my head. Talking about it so soon wasn't possible with all the questions I had running through my head. The next and final incident had taken place about two years after the first, by which point I had nearly forgotten about the thing with the note. I never ended up telling my wife even though I had planned to at some point, but I was glad I didn't. The last thing I needed was to freak her out. The cave that I had discovered this time around was more along the lines of a strange, circular hole in the ground. As far as the entrance anyway, the hole was a near-perfect circle, with a spiral staircase artificially carved out of the rock, leading downwards into the intimidating darkness. I followed my usual routine, made a quick trip back to my car, grabbed my equipment and returned back to the entrance of the cave, as my typical excitement began to rev up.
Small chunks of rock were dislodged and fell down into the middle as I slowly treaded down the stone staircase. There was a certain unusual warmth to it as my feet made contact with the rock. The descent itself only took less than a minute. The harder part was figuring out which tunnel to go down once I got to the bottom. There were two of them, each with an oddly distinct feature that seemed a little weird at first. The one on the left was a more smooth, rectangular shape. It looked like it had been artificially dug and carved, just as the makeshift staircase had been. Lining the walls of the tunnel were drawings in what appeared to be generic white chalk. And no, not any satanic symbols or anything, but drawings of just ordinary people it seemed like. It depicted neighborhoods, cities, and even small towns. Along with people occupying them and performing everyday activities like biking, walking, and even driving cars. The tunnel on the right was much more jagged and naturally occurring in its appearance. That's what I naively assumed anyway. The only thing that seemed off was a small trail of crumbs, more than likely from some sort of bread. I ended up choosing the tunnel on the left and began my journey down it, taking in all the sights of the white chalk drawings. They became even more dense the further down I went. A good chunk of them were even spread across the ground and ceiling. The genuine detail and creativity of it all impressed me. I was desperately eager to find the group or person responsible for it. After what had been a few more minutes of walking down the tunnel, I had seemingly come to the end when a multitude of small balls of light pierced through the thick darkness. They were in a rectangular formation similar to the shape of the tunnel itself. I unsheathed my machete, in case whatever was ahead ended up being a threat. The tunnel opened up into a much larger area. It was a room, a massive one at that. Inside the expanse sat multiple torches on the walls. On the ground, level to my feet were multiple rows of chairs that sat facing an altar towards the back. It showed its age, being covered in dust, cobwebs, and small pieces of pebbles that had been dislodged from the ceiling above. I spotted another tunnel right behind the altar, and just as I was about to move towards the altar, a friendly voice had stopped me right in my place. Could it be? He pleaded excitedly. Do we have a new ration? Ration, I thought. What the hell does that mean? I turned to face the figure speaking. He was an older man, probably nearly in his mid-sixties. His age and lack of hygiene were on full display, as his cheeks and upper neck were covered in rugged stubble. His fingernails were dirtier than the bottom of most people's beds, and his wrinkles were so noticeable, I thought he might have been a burn victim. He wore a torn-up white robe that had clearly seen better days. Hey there, I replied, hiding the fact that I was a little startled on the inside. I was just looking around. I didn't mean to interrupt or intrude on anything. No, no, that's nonsense. Come have a seat. Our session will begin soon. He directed me towards one of the chairs, motioning me with his unwashed hands. Well, actually, I was busy exploring and was just leaving. I told him, much to his disappointment. 
Say, how long have you been down here anyway? Oh, it's been quite some time. The old man chuckled. My brothers and I see this as our sanctuary. We are forbidden to return to what's up there. It goes against our law. I lifted an eyebrow, now becoming puzzled. How do you get food and water? Doesn't it get scary being down here all the time? The man stopped, his gaze now focused near my feet. He maintained a smile as he slowly lifted his eyes, as if he were sizing me up. Well, our food comes to us, he pronounced slowly. His tone became less inviting than before. I could feel myself tense up as he kept staring at me. I took one step back, keeping my hand tightened around my machete. You said you have brothers, right? I asked, attempting to kill the eerie silence. The man didn't answer at first. He simply stepped forward and placed his arms behind his back, slightly blocking the way that I had come in. Yes, we are very fond of one another. Family must always stick together. Would you like to meet them, perhaps? I, uh, I really need to get go. The man cut me off before I was able to finish my sentence. His unsettling stare had not left in the slightest as he looked at me. I insist you stay, he continued. No, man, I'm serious. I really can't. I'm busy, I pleaded, struggling to hide the fear in my tone. We've been very, very hungry, he said. The evil in his voice made my legs tremble and my blood run cold as I stood in place. Wouldn't you like to feed us? He continued. Please step away from me. I mean it. I shot back. Oh, trust me. This will be fun. You just have to see, that's all. His voice had deepened far beyond his initial introduction. He slowly took footsteps toward me and I watched as his eyes began to whiten, all the color retreating from them as he approached closer. Get the hell away from me, I demanded, raising my machete to face level. The man didn't stop. He seemed completely unbothered and kept coming with that same horrendous smile on his face. My brothers and I will enjoy you. I lunged at the man and slashed with my machete, cutting him in the shoulder and causing him to erupt violently with a deeply unsettling scream, which echoed loudly through the cave. Blood had splattered and poured onto the ground from his deep gash. I stood over the old man as he collapsed on his back and continued screaming in agony. But through his wails, I could hear the sounds of footsteps coming from the tunnel behind the altar. They were fast, angry, and impossibly forceful. There had to be at least 10 to 12 different sets of feet running on the ground in my direction. They were coming for me. His brothers, I thought, causing my heart to sink into my stomach. The man looked back up at me in his wounded state. Blood leaked out of his mouth and covered his bottom lip as he spoke. They heard you. They all know you're here and they're coming. He laughed maniacally. I immediately turned and began to run back down the tunnel that I had come through, jumping over the old man and leaving him behind. 
as these sounds of him getting mercilessly trampled by my pursuers filled the walls of the cave. They themselves made no noise, no chants, no screams or battle cries. I only heard the sounds of their footsteps. Somehow that was much worse. I pumped my legs with everything that I had. The light of the entrance was like a holy grail to my eyes as I frantically sprinted towards it. Not even taking the chance to look back at the beings chasing me. I bursted out into the bottom of the entrance and leaped up the first couple of stone stairs and almost tripped in the process, which would have been my inevitable doom if I hadn't regained my balance with lightning speed and threw myself towards the top. The sounds of the footsteps faded as I peered back down into the hole. I didn't see any of the other brothers chasing me. Thank God, I thought. I dashed over to my car and launched myself inside, put the keys in the ignition, and started it up. Still looking out the windshield to see if they had decided to follow me to the surface and surprise me. The coast was clear. That's how it seemed. But that didn't stop me from flooring it down the highway and all the way back home. My hand shook on the steering wheel the entire way back that day. I had never been that afraid in my life. This time, I had told my wife what had happened. There was no way I could have kept that bottled up. She had insisted I called the police to which I obliged after a certain amount of nagging. I wish you all could have seen the look on the chief's face when they had gone to the spot and found nothing. Even the entrance itself was non-existent. Nothing but a patch of grass. As if the cave itself had never been there in the first place. Please take these experiences as a warning. If you're going to do something dangerous, never do it alone. Always have some sort of backup plan in case things go wrong. You never know what's out there watching and waiting for you. I work at a crooked casino. You don't gamble with money here. Written by Jordan Group. Hi everybody. My name is Sid and I'm an addict. It took me a long time to accept that. But when you take a job in a casino just so that you can be there all the time and try to gain an edge, you're an addict. It's obvious even to me. More so to my friends and family, who I barely see anymore. It's not pills or coke, booze or heroin that I'm hooked on. I'm addicted to gambling. The casino that made me so obsessed is not an ordinary one now. It's far from ordinary. You don't play for money at Fantasy Casino. You play for your dreams. I hear you laughing. But have you ever really had a really, really great dream? One that got so good you snapped awake the second it started to get really excellent. Well, imagine that times a thousand. Times a million. A dream so real and so perfect that all of your fantasies become reality. Time stretches out. You feel like you are there forever. 
A lifetime passes before you return. Infinite wealth. The ability to fly like Superman. You're surrounded by sex and beautiful people all day. As you relax in a palace built to your mind's most exacting specifications of perfection. But then you wake up. And in an instant, it is gone. The power, the wealth, the endless sex and supernatural powers. Everything is suddenly normal again. And so, you go back to the casino. I went back to the casino. But the problem with gambling is that you don't always win. And when you lose, suddenly the winnings are gone as well. Vanished without a trace. All I knew was that I had to have that feeling again. So I went inside the giant building and then followed the secret signs which led to a door that led to a staircase going downwards. I went down the stairs and knocked on the door marked, private, and I waited for an answer. Password. The voice on the other side of the black door waited for my response. Sarah Jin. I said the unnatural words carefully and deliberately, still not knowing their meaning. My friend had told me the password, a fellow gambler, who I would later find dead in his apartment, his corpse white, bloated, and maggot-infested. His eyes were black and filled with blood, which streamed from his eye sockets like tears. He had bit his tongue clean off, and his fingernails were found lodged in various surfaces throughout his apartment, like he had been trying to claw his way out of a steel box that only he could see. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That was later. At this point, I was still hopeful for another wonderful dream. Still thankful for his advice to seek out the place. The door opened and I walked inside. It was the same as it had been the day before. Only less busy at this time. It was still early afternoon. I approached the table that I had been sitting at the night before. Poker, Texas Hold'em, 10 Dream Limit, the sign read. The rules were simple. You got a stack of chips, you doubled them, you received a dream. If you lost them, you lost a dream. I wasn't concerned about losing dreams yet. I still didn't understand exactly what that meant. When I lost my first stack of chips, I quickly bought in again. And again, and again. Pretty soon, I realized I lost eight dreams with no winnings whatsoever. I was in a slump, a losing streak. I decided to go home and count my losses, literally since I had no idea what that even meant. As I got up to leave the table, the dealer looked at me. His eyes were remorseless and cold. See the cashier on your way out, he said, handing me eight black chips. I gulped and walked over to the glass window where the cashier sat waiting. Handing him the eight chips, he raised his eyebrows and clicked his tongue. That's a shame. Hold out your hand, please. 
Two men in black suits came up behind me suddenly and stood on either side of me, intimidating in their stature and demeanor. I did as he asked and held out my hand with the palm facing up. The cashier pulled out a strange-looking device from beneath the counter. It had a vial of vermilion-colored liquid at the top that was attached to the rest of it, which resembled a gun with a hypodermic needle at the end. I screamed and tried to pull away, but the two men grabbed me and held my arm through the window. Thrashing and elbowing them, I tried to get away, but it was useless. The cashier injected the stuff into my veins quickly, and it felt cold and slimy going through my system. I could feel it suddenly in my heart, turning it cold and then up into my mind and my lungs and all extremities, causing me to shake and violently seize. I writhed on the floor, blood pouring from my ears and my eyes. Finally, the feeling settled down into numbness, that prickled the insides of my blood vessels. It wasn't until later, once I realized what the casino really was, that I found out what they had done. I went home with the certainty that they had injected me with something. If winning had resulted in the greatest dream I had ever had, essentially an almost never-ending fantasy, what would happen after a loss? Nightmares. That was what it would be. I was sure of it. I settled into bed that night and closed my eyes, drifting off to sleep quickly after such an emotionally exhausting afternoon. As soon as my eyes closed, they opened again and it was morning. It felt as if I had not slept at all. My mind was fuzzy and it was difficult to focus. My eyes wanted to close again, but my alarm was telling me that it was time to get up for work. So I hit the dismiss button and hopped in the shower. I threw on my clothes and I went out the door. At work, I noticed a few people looking at me strangely. But I didn't realize until someone pointed out to me that my shirt was on inside out. At this point, I was still working in an office doing commodities trading and such lapses were frowned upon. If you couldn't focus enough to put your shirt on properly in the morning, how could you focus enough to get the work done in such a demanding environment? Millions of dollars changing hands with each transaction meant that such trivial things were put under a magnifying glass, and coupled with other subsequent mistakes each following day after that, I found myself in the boss's office by the end of the week, being handed my walking papers. Desperate for rest after days of not feeling any benefit from sleep, I went back to the casino. They knew just by looking at me how to dig their claws in further. After a couple hours, I had managed to win myself a dream. They handed me the complimentary cocktail as they had the time before. I hadn't realized the significance of it and still didn't, despite the unusual vermilion color of the drink. I swallowed it in one gulp and went out the door practically dancing and clicking my heels, ready to go home and feel rested again. My dream that night was wonderful. 
everything I had hoped for in many ways, but not as good as the first time. I wanted that feeling back again. Knowing that it was a dream the whole time, and realizing that it was going to end seemed to shorten the fantasy. It made it seem hollowed and manufactured. If I could win again, maybe it would be like that first time, I thought. The casino drew me in again and again. I found myself a zombie most days, exhausted at my wit's end, ready to call it quits for good and say goodbye. But then I would win again, and it would all seem to be alright for a while. My debt kept growing and growing with nearly every trip. The hypodermic needle would be plunged into my skin, and every time they had to hold me down, every time I would feel a little more empty, a little more hollow. Waking up every day began to feel the same. Nothing had a definition or purpose. You're here all the time. One of the goons that whispered to me as they shot the needle into my vein at the time after that. Haven't you figured it out yet? You should just get a job here and then at least you'll be in on the secret. I applied the next day and got an interview with the boss. I found out later that if you got someone to apply, then you got a one dream bonus. In his office, a well-dressed man was sitting behind a massive, polished ebony desk. The room was adorned with paintings, sculptures, and other high-priced artwork. He had photos everywhere of himself shaking hands with world leaders, new and old, for hundreds of years. His face never changed, never aged. So, you want to work with us? Tired of dreamless nights without end. You want to have some relief. Is that it? Yes, please. Anything. I've been coming here for so long and it's an endless cycle. I want back what I've lost, but I keep finding myself in more and more debt with each visit. Ah, uh, so you do understand it now, then. What the injections are. It finally dawned on me, sitting there. Not injections at all. They weren't putting something in us. They were taking something out. The vermilion-colored liquid in the vials. It's our dreams. If I take a job with you, will the same rules apply? Will they still take my sleep, my rest, every time I lose? Yes. We can't have the employees living by different rules than everyone else. But we will give you an alternative injection, so that you will feel well rested when you come in for your shift. I'll do it. I need to rest. I need to get some meaningful sleep. My life has been miserable ever since coming here. Well, I can't promise that this will help. He said getting up from his desk with a hypodermic gun in his hand. A vial of fluid sitting atop this one was jet black, and it looked evil and poisonous. He rolled up his sleeves as he primed it, 
and I watched a few beads of it drip oil-like out of the tip of the needle. What the hell is that? I don't want that stuff in me. But you need to sleep, my dear worker. I can't have you passing out at the blackjack table like a narcoleptic. You agreed to this after all. You wanted to rest. And the only way for that to happen is for you to have some sort of dream. Not everyone is as lucky as you are, you know. To have that wonderful vermilion fluid in your veins. Some people come to us begging to take it from them. Some of our employees, for example. The ones who do the recruitment for us are full of this black stuff. What? I had gotten up from the chair and was backing away from him towards the door. But I found it was locked as he approached. First, you have to tell me the password, Sid. Seremth Jin. I said the words that I had said every time to gain access to the casino. Only this time, I pictured the letters and rearranged them in my mind. Nightmares. He smiled as he injected me with the vial of black hate, and it went into my veins feeling hot and unpleasant. I began to sweat and the beads of it turned cold on my skin as I shivered. I'll sleep tonight. I might even wake up feeling rested. But as long as I live and work at that casino, I'll be afraid to dream again. Because now, my unconscious hours are occupied by the most terrifying experiences imaginable. Nightmares beyond imagining in their awfulness. That is my fate. Unless, just maybe, I can win one more time. We know when the world will end, but none of us know how. Written by Rancid Wolf 5 Though I've never admitted it, I've always been a little bit afraid of the moon. The ghostly shadow of the sun, always lingering with no warmth and little light. So, what motive does it have? I could never predict the moon. Its size, position, shape, and color could change its whim like a sinister skinwalker, serving only vampire bats and just by stretching high, endangering man. The only constant, reliable fact I knew was that the moon appeared at night. And yet, at day it sometimes lingered like a grossly misshapen cloud, a too-perfect circle for nature alone to carve. I always felt threatened by its looming presence. Once on a winter's night, I was driving home along the M4 motorway, and the moon had consumed the entire horizon. It was larger than I had ever seen. A yellow wall of unpunctured brick stood seemingly on the hills to my left. Despite the road ahead, I couldn't look away. My speed of 90 kilometers remained unrained and while gazing out at the passenger window. The moon's presence was so powerful, like the white of a wolf's eye. 
I felt a tense wind ripped in my skin, as if I was covered in cold fur. I stared, neglecting my growing speed. I plunged into the back of the station wagon ahead. I was fine and so was he. The only pain was a shortly missed breath and a dent in our vehicles, one each. Nothing that my insurance wouldn't cover. It seems funny now, looking back to that night, that the end of the world would come from an inconsequential speck which lay idly aside the moon's awesome presence. And there was no insurance for the damage that it would cause. It appeared in April. One night, we went to bed and one morning, we rose to see the stain of the sky. It had no formal name despite its relevance. No wonder. There wasn't anything characteristic about it. It was a dot. No more, no less. Smaller than the moon and sun, respectively. Black. It was just a dot. They delivered the news with stoicism. Domesticated tongues contradicted with their eyes. Their eyes where the truth could always be seen. Ripped red and darting. Their eyes screamed their mind's truths while the tame tongue spat word after scripted word. So too, you could see these stains in their shirts begin to seep through. Coffee and cups jittering seconds before the cameras went live began to taint the purity of the cotton. The politicians, of course, had a plan. An elaborate speech where nothing was said followed by an action. They said that we had three years. A lot can change in three years. Three years ago, a different man stood in place, but I am here now for my country. Of course, they turned this into a game of bows. None of us knew how or why, but the black dot hailed the world's end. It was a hostile spaceship, filled with alien armies. It was God's wrathful finger aimed with like arrow, a rogue asteroid, a Russian laser satellite, a black of hole for you to fill in. What it was we may not have known, but it was cancerous nonetheless. Though the world could see it, the first to mark it was a man named Isaac Odea, a NASA-involved astronomer who briefly after his discovery drew a black dot of his own right between his eyes. In the first year of the three that remained, the world was relatively quiet. At first, I admired our race for keeping our heads unified in such a crisis, though in hindsight, I now see it was just clear denial. Surprisingly, from a strained Christian-based society whose need for God has been long outgrown, many scurried to Mass, a lot of whom had never been. The churches became more and more packed with each Sunday that passed. When the doors were forced shut, some folk took matters to their own hands. Cults sprouted like weeds, charming and ambitious men who would never live to their destined potential built ranches, land, churches, and safe-haven communities for those that desperate enough to outlive the apocalypse. Are you willing to work in the new world? Posters would read that littered the streets. Are you worthy to outlive the rapture? Wrote some scoutmaster types. Though these were mostly extreme cases and had a little effect on the real world, for the tamer, grounded population... 
Uh, their lives focused, shifted to life's pleasures. Parties were rampant. Personal disputes were disbanded. Everyone became a thrill-seeker, doing the things they had spoken of doing for decades now. With no time to waste and consequences becoming futile fears, why not go hang gliding in Brazil? Screw it, we'll go next weekend. And so my parents took one last holiday. My friends choked on copious amounts of coke at clubs. My boss abandoned his multi-millionaire company after no buy or sell value. And I... I just kind of waited. I carried on as normal, though I suppose my normal life was already one of hopelessness. In truth, I had given up long before the world began to end. Its rotten decay meant nothing to a heart beating faintly as mine. I had no aspirations, never dreamt a lot or desired much. In truth, another first admission, my only true goal was to father children, and maybe I suppose get a published piece of writing. But when Olivia left a year before that dream, and further aspiration had gone with her, after she blocked my number, I had written her letters, seal, address, and I would date them but not one was ever sent. I don't know why I did it. It started as my take on an exercise my therapist had given me, but grew into a shameful obsession. I think it was just the closest I could get to closure, or contact, but it was never enough to settle my seeking mind. And on the topic of fleeing, my therapist left late during the year. Though he was a good man and doing his best to allocate his time to helping the dying, depressed and damned, he was but a man. In these times, the world was focused. Focused on whatever foolish endeavors they thought would save them. Preachers screamed louder and on higher soapboxes. Protesters marched tighter and implored political action. One man I passed in the street waved a sign with a vigor akin to a patriot with his flag. The solution is simple, he told me as if I had asked. We empty a town, any will do. Fill it to the brim with military, and nuke the crap out of it. On another rare venture past my mailbox, I saw a young woman urinating out the front of a police station, clearly intoxicated at 11 in the morning nonetheless. The officer, a clean-shaven bloke with a press shirt who if not driven by professional matters, must have been the less bit personally disturbed by this unhygienic act. He didn't move. It doesn't matter. We're all screwed anyway. We're all done. She slurred and screamed at passersby. And the officer must have agreed, for he looked, laughed, and carried on. In the second year, the smiling stoicism and screw-it attitude of the prior had dulled. In place of laughter came a silence. For months, depression, both economic and behavioral, consumed the world. Most small family businesses had shut, focusing their limited income on the remaining 20-odd months to come. The big dogs, the billionaire babies, the brands and businesses stayed open, though you'd often see a lack of casual staff running registers. The supermarkets turned to an honesty system of self-checkouts. I had started to keep a diary, another one of these shrinks' ideas. 
if the world isn't evaporated instantly, someone may very well find it and read the account of the most pathetic protagonist imaginable. I'm sure it'll confirm the alien's narrative of our incompetence. It seemed that the world had stopped, laid down and prepared to die. The politicians had vanished and the streets became unkempt. As the buildings and roads deteriorated, so too did the social structures of man. And death rates jumped. In my quiet isolation, which was really no different than the majority of my life, I thought more and more of her. God, what I would give to spend the last year and a half with her. Sure, I had nothing to lose, but that also meant that I had nothing to sacrifice. I found myself on a walk once. I had to see what, if any, life remained in the desolation. Subconsciously, I must have taken myself to her place. I swear that I didn't mean to show at the time, but there I had walked, standing outside her door. This was probably the first time I had cried since the announcement in the April prior, and I mean, I really cried. I considered myself unfeeling, unnerving, and cold as a common and pathetic defense. But lies are fragile things and lies to yourself for the weakest type, because you already know the truth. My wailing had drawn attention by some others out for a walk. Three boys approached me and mocked me for my display. At least it wasn't her. The stranger shoved me into the semi-secluded path weaving behind the complex of townhouses in which I stood. The spot would normally be tucked in a nightly shadow, if not for the bleeding sun, and its small black, nameless friend above. I was further mocked, before being kicked, beaten, and robbed. Looking back, it's so funny. Why, I'd ask them. Why do you even need my money now? Well, there's not much else we can do. They had laughed. I can see your face. I commented blankly. It wasn't meant to be a challenge. It was just curious to me how little it mattered to them. The boy from the back stood forward and flashed a knife. God, he flung it fast. Narrowly timed, I managed my hands to face and the blade tore through my pale flesh. Blood seeped and squirted like a crimson cascade onto the pavement. I didn't yell, just turned heel and ran. Olivia's house was nowhere near my home. It was stupid to take such a long walk. Thankfully, I knew of a local health clinic a few blocks over. Well, in all honesty, it was a vet, but it mattered little because upon entry, I was greeted by a vacant silence with only the resonating sound of my blood dripping to keep me company. It was midday, midweek, and I was robbed and alone in a vat. It was just so funny. By November, the streets spoke again. One of the major cults, the Repented, marched on a city long since abandoned. They had weapons, but no one cared less. The Repented theorized the Da was a doorway for the raptured, the holy souls who would be taken to heaven on the day of the world's end. The repented believed they were the new disciples of Jesus Christ, and when the rapture came, they would be excluded for past sins and instead, they would be chosen to stay and spread the new gospel. I think their vision of Jesus is a high school jock or something. 
because these guys didn't come across as the helpful happy folk who had locked the church doors a year before. An opposing cult, the Welcome Party, believed in fact the dot above was a mothership containing an entire population of higher beings who would take Earth and, in accordance to plan, used the members of the Welcome Party as slaves and servants to rid the world of infidels. It didn't take long before the cults began to clash. Driven by the powerful motivation of fear and inadequacy, if only Isaac Odea had told us what he saw. In the chaos of the crazies, the more grounded population was taken up by gangs. They would rob, wreck, and ride because the hang gliders were closed, and the who care attitude demanded a stimulation. I was torn. I spent my time in a house with faltering power and resources. My isolation drew on my mind. Before I found comfort in the thought of being alone, I was defiant to a world which wanted to help me, which wanted me to live. Now what was I? I couldn't rebel where there was no system. Outside the world was red and rampaged in the setting sun of civilization. Inside, the darkness drew closer, and my sanity slipped with each bottle I drained. The third year began somewhere along the way. I don't know who was counting the days. Maybe she was, I thought. Maybe. Maybe I should ask her what the time was. Or the day. That was a good enough excuse. Uh, no. I just had to see her before the end. This time, I drove to her house. Not wishing to go scurrying for bandages again. I drove about 90 kilometers consistently. Not caring about the road rules, but lacking the confidence to drive faster. I just had to see her once more. The moon that night was high. It looked far, far away, yet it was looking straight down at me, bathing me solely in its meaningless light. I didn't need it. I just had to see her. Rain fell lightly, yet failed to dull the fire that pranced. I stood in her driveway bathed in a nightly shadow. I just had to have her one more time. I drove home in the oncoming lane. Only one car passed me. He was going 160 at least. My internals had taken a vile plummet and bile leaked through my tears. When I got home, I ripped open the door and left it ajar, leaving just as much a path of reckoning as I had done at hers. I pointed a gun into my mouth. This was the only other time that I cried. My finger never twitched as it closed in on the trigger, but I still chose not to pull it. Not because I feared death. Not because I made peace, but because I didn't deserve the quick way out. I wouldn't allow myself a death so seductive. The wolves. The ones that howled at the inverted moon. I would let them pick me apart. Either that or when the end came, I would embrace whatever horrible hell it meant for us. After all, there wasn't much time left. I took a walk. To the center of town, I trotted slowly wanting for the wolves to pick at my poisoned flesh. In typical fashion, none paid mind. Some things never change, I guess. My skin was shameful. It was evil, it was animal, it was the new normal. 
The wolves and vampires I walked past were too occupied with pointless violence. Bodies lay, coughing and choking on their own swallowed teeth, and mere meters away, groups of naked figures joined together in piles. I didn't know what started it. I had been inside for too long, but I know it was in them, us along. The moon. God, how I wish it was blood red. I just wanted some confirmation that it all meant something, but it didn't. No one was driving our hand. As the hands closed on the doomsday clock, nothing changed. We stood there and howled. Howled at the moon and its lesser darker twin, which hid from us behind the stars. When the sun rose and the fires dimmed, we looked up to see the black dot was gone. With it, every act of sincerity and sin cleansed with the sunrise of April 1st. Later, they would come from below. The devil somehow wore the cleanest suit. As it turns out, the stain in the sky was nothing but a projection that NASA had imposed. The apocalypse had happened. These three years lasted a detox for the elite. While we ate the flesh of our sons, they chowed on caviar crackers and vintage vino. While we'd been out here suffering, dying, and mentally decaying, they'd been biding their time in brumation like snakes awaiting a winter's past. The population has been significantly lowered with poor killing poor, and those who remain, so drenched in heavy blood that they'll either sink or be subjected to unarguable capital punishment. We've bought solely from those rich enough to keep the lights on, but in all fairness, they did nothing to force our hand. In a way, it was a rapture, a waterhole poisoning that killed whatever lies we, as a society, had told ourselves. God did not make us, and if he did, he made us no different than the lions, wolves, and aves. We were only chosen by our fathers, and like them, our legacy is nothing but a continuing path of biology. Tomorrow, the world resumes. I think I may go see my therapist. None of the memories I have about my life feel real. Today, I found out why. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. Tell me if you've heard this before. You should always get to know someone before you marry them. Meet their parents, colleagues, and even their enemies. You should experience all the different dimensions and sides to a person before you give them the opportunity of a serious commitment, especially when it's for life. But what if you had woken up one morning with a woman in bed next to you, with a ring on both her finger and yours? Most people will laugh the statement off as some sort of a drunken night gone wrong. Something you would only see in a cartoon. But not for me. For me, it was a reality. The woman in question was familiar yet alien at the same time. I possessed memories of her. That much was true. They were vivid, but I never remembered experiencing or actually going through any of them. Not a single one. Even our wedding seemed so grandiose and planned out in my head. However, I can't recall what it felt like to say, I do. 
or any of the stress that came with the planning beforehand. Yet despite all of that, I knew her name, her favorite color, and her birthday. But trying to remember what led me to obtain that information left me with a blank canvas in my mind. Some memories were much more potent than others. Some weren't even there at all. Even though in my head uh, I swore up and down they should have been. She turned over to me in bed, running a soft hand along my chest as she groaned with morning grog. She was uh, definitely beautiful. There was uh, no denying that. Her face and body were stunning. Black flowing hair, teeth as white as winter snow. She possessed eyes so elegantly brown, one could mistake them for Hershey kisses. Good morning, sweetie. She kissed my cheek. Should we make some breakfast? I forced a smile, chalking to my suspicion to simply being hungover from the previous night. Maybe we had just decided to have a drink together, and I bit off more than I could chew. Yeah, that sounds great, actually. Well, of course it does, silly. She said as she began to climb out of bed, and to which I followed. I'm almost compelled, too, by her alluring appearance. Even her favorite breakfast foods were easy to remember. She loved eggs and bacon, although wasn't very fond of toast. But I usually ended up making some for just myself. That's what my memory allowed me to recall anyway. Her name was Lucia. She was 26 years old and currently employed as an accountant. She was quite soft-spoken, but stern when needed. We had been together for three years before I proposed and we became engaged for several months. From what I could gather about her family, her father wasn't quite fond of me at first. Not that it was a rare occurrence. Her mother was not in the picture. One memory informed me Lucia had told me her mother had died giving birth to her. As for myself, I had been working as an electrician for the last several years, making a pretty good salary. Seeing as our house was definitely equipped to hold a family, it was no mansion by any means, but it was everything a couple with no kids needed, plus a little more. I was more than satisfied with it. I examined Lucia as we cooked breakfast together. She hummed a song I didn't quite recognize as she scrambled the eggs in a bowl. Nonetheless, it was a beautiful tune. I unintentionally nodded my head along to it. What song is that, hon? I asked, casually opening the fridge to grab orange juice. I forgot the name, actually. All I know is my brothers used to sing it a lot when we were growing up. Brothers? I thought to myself. No memories popped up in my head about any brothers that she had. That was one of the many things that had left me puzzled since this morning. What are your brothers up to these days? I questioned, doing some subtle probing to find out more and fill the gaps. Lucia smirked, pouring the eggs into a pan and letting them sizzle as they collided with hot metal. They visit us every day, you dork. She teased gleefully. My dad always calls them over. And once again, my memory had failed me. But that didn't stop my curiosity. 
So I kept asking her about the brothers thing. Yeah, well, they meant stuff like their hobbies and interests. Once again, she simply smiled and brushed off my question. As if I should have already known what she was referring to. I tried to keep the morning peaceful and simply sat down and ate the breakfast that we had both prepared together. I did my best to strike up conversation about other topics, trying to learn as much as I could about the other aspects of what I was missing. You can imagine my frustration when everything we talked about had been a rehearsal of what I already knew. Little to no details of anything we discussed ever surprised me or jogged my memory. Part of me felt like she was hiding information on purpose. Honey, when my dad came over last time, he mentioned that he wants you to check out the backyard. Thinks that we might have moles. I mentally dug around for any memories of a molehole in the backyard. It was once again something I had no memory of. Not even any vague mentions or conversations relating to it. I'll go take a look. I informed Lucia, planting a kiss in her cheek as she stood up to clear off the table. Maybe spending a little bit of time away from her separately was what I needed. I slipped my shoes on and headed into the backyard to check out the molehole. I completely remembered the layout of the yard, even where certain leaves were scattered. Yet there was a strange oak tree that had grown right in the exact center of the grassy expanse. I didn't have any recollection of it previously being there. Autumn leaves blew in the wind and fell off the tree, landing in random locations around the yard and that of our neighbors. I kept my guard up while slowly approaching the tree. There was a certain indescribable aura around it. It didn't feel like it belonged there. Not at all. I stopped once I was just about a foot away. My circled around the tree and my heart leapt out of my chest as I tripped and nearly fell. On the opposite of the tree was a hole, a little over six feet in diameter. I was only inches away from falling right in when I had trapped. The hole was deep, endlessly deep. I looked down and was greeted with nothing but the sights of a bottomless, pitch-black abyss. What the hell? I blurted, scratching my head in a completely puzzled expression. I couldn't take my eyes off the sights in front of me. The hole was as unsettling as it was fascinating. How had it even gotten here? Who dug this? How was it even possible to dig something like this in the first place without some sort of a special drill? Question after question raced through my head with no satisfying answer. This definitely was no molehole. That much was obvious. Good morning, sir, came a strange male voice from behind me. I quickly turned, laying my eyes upon a young man. He looked no older than in his mid-twenties. He carried a dirty shovel in one hand and a stack of papers in the other, while wearing dirt-stained jeans and a simple white t-shirt with a strange logo on the front, along with a red baseball cap on the top of his head. Behind him, I noticed varying degrees of drilling and digging equipment. Then you are, I interrogated. I'm the contractor your wife hired. The name's Lewis, he smiled, 
We spoke on the phone a few days ago. I have the call logs here if you want to look them over. Me punctuated by waving the stack of papers in his hand. I gotta admit, his enthusiasm was infectious. Especially when he had a job like this. Uh, yeah, I, I would actually. I cautiously walked up and grabbed the papers. Scanning through them one by one proved what he was saying. The call had come from my wife's phone number. She had told him to come dig near the old tree in order to trick these supposed moles that we had, and to dig in their way into the endless pit so they would die. But this was currently the only hole in the backyard. I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume the other ones had previously been taken care of. Lucy, however, had never mentioned multiple holes. Why didn't she say anything about you before? I asked, handing the papers back. Well, sir, I can't answer that. But if this isn't a good time, I can come back later. Uh, no, no, it's fine. I reassured him. I'm just going to go talk to her quickly. When I marched back into the house and looked around for Lucia, I looked back and gave Louis a few glances. He still kept that same enthusiastic and contagious smile every time I looked at him. When I made it inside and called out for Lucia, she wasn't anywhere to be found. I even went out of my way to check the bedroom and bathrooms to no avail. The kitchen was empty as well. After a little bit of pointless searching, I chalked it up to her as simply going to work and not giving me a heads up. Instead of going to work myself, I had called in sick. It felt necessary to stay at home and get to the bottom of my strange feelings. Working around high-voltage machines wasn't an intelligent idea in the weird mental state that I was in. The first thing I did after calling in was start rummaging through Lucia's things. But to no one's shock, going through her bags, clothes, and dresser led me to find nothing that shouldn't have been there. Everything was normal in that regard. Next, I tried the bathroom, which also proved to be nothing of interest. I genuinely thought I was starting to lose it. One half of me felt like I was completely overthinking this whole situation. That this was all some big internal misunderstanding and that I shouldn't question it any further. But it couldn't have been that simple. There was something more to this. I just knew it. Ignoring it would eat me up for the rest of my life, if it wasn't even real in the first place. I made a quick trip back to the bedroom for one last sweep. I figured it was worth a final shot. As much as the movies may lead you to think otherwise, there was nothing intriguing in the basement or attic. I got down on one knee to look under the bed, darting my eyes back and forth on the dirty floor beneath. Toward Lucia's side of the bed, I spotted an envelope covered in dust and crumbs. The thing looked like it had been there for multiple years without being moved in the slightest. I reached a hand out and grabbed it. Dust flew off in all directions as I tore it open. There was no formal address or information you would usually find on an envelope in the mail. The only thing written on the front in blue ink was two simple words. No repentance. Huh. I huffed audibly, before starting to open it. Inside were two items. A printed out picture with a letter that seemed to go along with it. 
The picture depicted a family that I had never seen before, all sitting in what appeared to be their backyard during a cookout. A youthful, well-dressed female stood between a young boy and girl. Both seemed only about 12 years old, clearly the mother of the family. To the right of them was where the father would have been if he hadn't been torn out of the picture. The only thing left of his existence in the image were the pair of jeans that he was wearing. They only went up to the knees as the rest of them had been ripped out from the photo. I pulled the note out from the envelope and unfolded it after finishing looking up at the picture. The note read as follows. This image is a lie. A perfect example of what he claims our family is. But he's a monster. Do not let his false display of comforting family connection trick you. He says he'll kill me if I call the cops or tell anyone. I need help. Please, somebody help me. The kids and I can't take it anymore. I'm going to sneak away with them one of these days. I need for the time to be right. I think it's pretty clear the conclusion I came to after reading it. I punctuated my feelings out loud by rubbing my forehead and sighing, comprehending the horrific implications of the note. I put the note down and looked at the picture one last time. There was an incalculable amount of questions going through my head, and having no answers only made it worse. I truly felt alone with this problem. Like I was living in some dystopia, where everyone knows what's going on but me. What a piece of crap, I said out loud. What's a piece of crap? I turned to find Lucia standing in the doorframe behind me with a puzzled expression. Her appearance had shifted from what it was just a couple of hours ago. Her eyes were much more bloodshot, her skin was slightly sunburned, and her lips were intensely chapped. I thought you went to work, honey, I told her, doing my best to sound authentic and not mention the odd shift in her looks. What? It's not a work day, she corrected me, her voice now slightly scratchy. I was out running errands. Oh, I announced, being caught off guard. But before I could ask why she hadn't told me beforehand, she interrupted with a question of her own. What are you looking at over there? She inquired, now crossing her arms as she glared at me. This. I pointed at the picture and note. Just found this under the bed. It was on your side. Do you know anything about it? You mind if I see it, honey? She held out her hand, also ignoring my question in the process. I took notice that her fingernails were much less sanitary than when I had last seen them. Dirt and grime had stripped away the previously pristine, white presentation of them. Um, yeah, sure, I replied, handing her the items. I took her looking over the note as an opportunity to ask her about Louis. So, what's the deal about the guy in our backyard? And that hole, too. You mean Louis? She responded without even looking up. He's a contractor you wanted me to give him a call, remember? No, I don't remember, actually. I said now standing up on my feet, letting the irritation that I was feeling display itself on my face. Getting lied to was slowly getting old and I was getting fed up. Everything from her dodging the questions to hiding information 
was really getting under my skin. Why the hell is he digging a massive hole in our backyard? What's the purpose of it? It doesn't make any sense. It's a surprise, honey, she said firmly. I could tell she wanted the conversation to be over already. So, having a random guy from a company I don't even know the name of, and digging an impossibly deep hole in our backyard, is the setup for some big surprise. I stepped closer to Lucia after finishing my small tirade. Her expression turned to one of nervousness. The tension between us only rose as I met her face to face. What is it with you? I try to do something nice and this is how you react. She sneered at me. So, asking questions makes me the devil now. You're not telling me things. You're lying, acting weird. And I'm pretty sure that you drugged me for Christ's sake. Drugged you? Are you seriously accusing me of something that heinous? Why would I drug my own freaking husband? Are you even listening to yourself? I took a deep, seething breath. Move. I demanded forcefully. I won't ask a second time. And if I don't... Lucia stood her ground. We both stood there, completely frozen and unsure of what to do. I could see Lucia subtly getting into a defensive stance. I could tell my display of anger was scaring her. I took a step back and changed my posture to a more open stance, not wanting the tension to rise any higher. Never mind. It doesn't matter, not a big deal. I huffed while unclenching my fist and relaxing my hands. What is wrong with you? Lucia inquired as she stepped aside and allowed me to exit the bedroom. I walked away without saying another word and risking flaring up another argument. Now, while I forgave Lucia for acting strange, it doesn't change the nature of everything that's been going on for the entire day. I tried to get through the rest of the day doing normal things I hadn't gotten the chance to indulge in up to this point. Watching the game, having a beer and attempting to forget about all that had transpired. The evening went by as slowly as you can imagine. I door dashed myself and Lucy at dinner because I was too mentally exhausted to cook. It wasn't until the food had actually gotten there that I realized how hungry I actually was. I scarfed it all down like an animal, most of it without taking a single sip of my drink. We ate in the separate rooms of the house. The tension that had arisen earlier now fell into an eerie silence. And I knew for a fact that it would stay that way for the remainder of the night. I flipped through channel after channel on the TV and switched on the living room lamp. The light showered the room and reflected everything happening on the big window to the right. I had forgotten to shut the curtains. As I was mindlessly scrolling through potential things to watch... Something in the window caught my attention. It was only just in the corner of my eye, but still prominent enough for me to take notice. I could make out the figure of Lucia standing right behind me. She looked much skinnier, impossibly thin. I was almost sure I could see her bones sticking out of her elbows. Even her fingernails had extended to far longer than what most people would consider hygienic. I snapped my head around in response, preparing myself for the hair-raising sight that I was soon to lay my eyes on. But when I turned, 
Lucia was standing there looking as she did previously. Much less monstrous than her reflection counterpart, but still rough around the edges. My stupid brain was just playing tricks on me again, right? Hey, I'm going to bed, she pronounced calmly. I'm sorry about everything today. Hopefully tomorrow isn't the same. I hesitated before replying, darting my eyes between her and my recently polished off can of beer. It's all good. We'll have a fresh start tomorrow. Wow, what a great apology. She stormed off, allowing me to hear her angry footsteps towards the bedroom. I can tell you really meant that. Lucia punctuated as she disappeared into the hallway. I made no attempt to follow or go after her. I figured it was better to let her cool off and have her alone time, especially with the state that I was in. The alcohol did calm me down enough not to let her snarky comment infuriate me. One thing that had popped back into my head was the note under the bed that I had found. And then I also remember Lucia saying that her father brings her brothers over every day. And yet, I still hadn't seen them this entire day. I got up and crushed my beer can before marching over to the kitchen and tossing it. In my head, all they could think about was going to the fridge and getting another, sitting down, relaxing, and then eventually joining Lucia in bed once she had diffused her attitude. It was when I tilted my head up and took a peek out the kitchen window. It was when my heart sank. I stopped in place. The bang of the beer can hitting the ground of the trash bin seemed extra loud in the silence of the house. The tree that was in front of the so-called mole hole was now gone. The hole was now on full display in our backyard. It seemed to have grown in its diameter, being nearly double what it was before. I hadn't heard Lewis do anything to chop the tree down. It was impossible for him to have gotten it out of here without making any noise. That tree was far too thick to cut with just an axe. That is, in a reasonable amount of time. I turned to start walking down to the bedroom to talk to Lucia. My footsteps were heavy this time around. My nostrils flared up and my fists were once again clenched. The alcohol's calming effects were being overpowered by my temper. Turning the corner and wandering down the hallway, I made a swift stop at the bedroom door and put my hand on the knob. Once I turned it, however, it didn't open. Lucia had locked it from the inside. Lucia, I raised my voice as I pounded on the door in fury. Open the door now. I'm done playing these stupid little games. Lucia didn't respond verbally. Instead, a faint scratching came from the bottom of the door. It was a cringe-inducing and made me want to cut my ears in my hands. It was worse than nails on a chalkboard. And covering my ears only did so much to relieve me of it. The scratching slowly moved its way up the door, keeping that same annoying, ear-shattering pitch as it ascended. Lucia, I practically shouted. Stop! She refused to use words yet again. I could feel my blood boiling now. I was ready to tear the dang door off its hinges and barge right in. I had grown tired of her gaslighting and manipulating me. I'm gonna knock down this dang door. You better. My sentence was quickly cut off. Lucia began to bang on the door from the other side. 
They were much more violent than what I was even planning on. It was like she had read my mind. Bang after bang, thud after thud. Her forceful blows threatened to annihilate the entire doorframe. The punches she delivered were out of anger or malice. She didn't need to say anything for that to click in my head. That's when I decided to back away from the door, slowly but surely placing one foot after another, cautiously as I distanced myself, not wanting her to hear me. The banging only became more intense as I got further away. It was like she could sense my movement. It didn't matter how quiet I tried to be. I started to pick up the pace and dart away from the bedroom in a light jog. I had only made it several feet when the sound of the door being completely detached and thrown off of its hinges drowned my eardrums. She was out of the room now, and she was coming. I could hear the rapid footsteps behind me. I sped up and down the hall and past the living room, now running in an almost near sprint. She was gaining on me, but yet her footsteps now sounded much more plentiful, like she was running with more than just two feet. I refused to look back at her, fearful of whatever terrifying sight would be waiting for me. As she chased me through the house, she didn't scream, talk or make any sounds other than her aggressive stampeding, accompanied by the noise her nails made when being dragged across the carpet, the wood and the tile. I dashed through the kitchen and had finally made it to the back door, quickly swinging the dangling open and trying to lunge myself forward outside. But not before Lucia had grabbed me by the ankle. Her fingernails made me grind my teeth as they sank into my delicate flesh. Got you, she snarled. Her voice had transformed from an innocent, light, feminine pitch to a much more sinister, scratchy, and terrifying sound. A sound I wouldn't wish my worst enemy to hear. She dragged me along the backyard towards the hole. I kicked and screamed and tried to wiggle myself free, but her strength had grown far beyond what a woman of her size should have been capable of. I was still yet to see what she had actually looked like now. I dug my nails into the grass, trying desperately to slow her down. Lucia, let me go, I demanded. I'm sorry. Oh, now you're sorry. She chuckled tauntingly in that spine-chilling voice. It's too late for you once again. She replied with a cold tone. What are you talking about? I shot back. Lucia stopped as we were now just inches away from the hole. She turned around, allowing me to get a glimpse of her dreadful appearance. Her face was now elongated. Her chin nearly hung down to her chest. Her fingernails were longer than any animal's claws I had ever seen. Her hair had turned to frizzy and dry. Parts of it had fallen out and exposed her rough scalp. Her eyes had completely disappeared, now being replaced with black voids similar to that of the hole. She growled inhumanly as she stared me down. Her grip tightened around my leg and I felt her fingernails stick deeper into my skin. Blood leaked out from these small punctures in my leg. Lucia pulled harder and slung me forward. I felt my back scrape across the ground before I was soon met with the sensation of weightlessness. I screamed and stretched my arms as I fell down into the abyss. 
The world at the surface slowly became smaller and faded away as I descended downward. The pitch black darkness swallowed me up faster than I could process. My mind was telling me that this would be it. This would be the end. I'd hit the bottom of whatever this hellish pit led to and I would become a human smoothie. To my genuinely grateful surprise, the impact never came. I had only fallen for what seemed like 30 seconds. I felt my feet on the ground once again. It was really cold though, metallic and smooth. This metallic material only made that worse. I wasn't complaining. It was a blissful compared to the sensation I had just experienced. My life was flashing before my eyes the entire time that I was falling. I got to my feet, looked around, and found myself in some sort of room. It appeared to be a bunker of some kind. Although the interior of the room was barren with no sort of furnishing or equipment, just gray metal walls, ceilings, and floor. When I glanced upwards, the hole that I had fallen through was completely covered by a thick layer of metal. Steel was my first guess, but the entire room was covered in it. It was simply a rectangular expanse of the stuff. A little cramped as well with not much space to move around. I covered my eyes as a reflex when a bright orange light had suddenly flooded the room. There was no clear direction where it had come from. Not only that, but I could feel the temperature beginning to rise. My forehead began to sweat and I could feel my clothing beginning to stick to me due to the perspiration on my body. It's good to see you again, said a familiar voice. I quickly turned and there stood Lewis. A calm smile spread across his face. What even is this? I demanded. What did you do? What happened to Lucia? Why is she that freaking thing? Lewis's expression stayed consistent through my panicked rambling. He simply kept his arms crossed as he stood in place. I'm Lucia's father, he said cheerfully. Sorry about forgetting to mention that earlier. Actually, no, I'm not sorry. Seeing as I just keep doing it over and over. You've got a lot more explaining to do than just that, I growled, now starting to step toward him. Lewis nonchalantly held up a hand and I stopped, but not by my own free will. I could feel the force of some sort tugging at my back for me to stay put. And despite no physical object or person being behind me when I looked. Would you mind if I did a little reading? Lewis asked rhetorically. I watched him reach for his front left pocket and retrieve the note that I had found earlier from the bedroom. Along with the picture as well. How did you get that? He held the note up in front of him and ignored me. He then dramatically cleared his throat and began slowly reading it out loud. This image is a lie. A perfect example of what he claims our family is. But he's a monster. Do not let his false display of comforting family connection trick you. He says he'll kill me if I call the cops or tell anyone. I need help. Please, somebody help me. The kids and I can't take it anymore. I'm going to sneak away with them one of these days. I need for the time to be right. I felt my knees starting to give out as he finished reading. I tumbled to the floor but still stayed with the same general area I was previously standing. My stomach churned and my muscles weakened. 
it felt like the sky was falling on me, and the heat inside the room had only gotten worse. I couldn't move my arms to wipe the sweat away. That does sound like quite the monster, doesn't it? Lewis chuckled. His voice had deepened in pitch. I felt my neck being forcefully moved up towards Lewis, and there I laid pathetically on the ground as he towered over me and took pleasure in my agony. As he held up the picture in front of me, the mystery husband that had been torn out began to fade back into it, as if it were repairing itself. The picture reconstructed the damaged part right in front of me. The husband. It was me. I was the man in the note the mother of that family was talking about. Lewis cackled as all the real memories started to come back to me. I was truly what the note had described. A monster. The things I had said and done to the kids along with my wife. My real wife. Her name was Alyssa. I murdered her when she had tried to take them away from me for their protection. It was replaying in my head like a movie. We fought bloody knuckles. I had just stabbed her in the heart and she was slowly passing out. But not before getting a shot in the neck by my own daughter, who had taken the gun from my nightstand. The look of fear and horror in her eyes would be one I would never forget. All of the things that had happened today were my punishment. The consequences of being such a horrendous father and husband. Lewis then took a few steps back and knelt down to get eye to eye with me. You should rest up, damned one. You've got a big day just like this one ahead of you tomorrow. And the day after that as well. Eternity is a long time, you know. I heard dozens of terrifying laughs come from behind. I couldn't physically turn around to see what was making them but I was sure I would come to find out soon enough. What are they? I shrieked at Lewis. Oh, those. Lewis once again smirked. Those are Lucia's brothers. I investigate disturbing cases for a living. These are my stories. Written by Brian Young. They say that everyone has a case that haunts them. Personally, if it's just one case, then clearly whoever they are isn't doing very good police work. Being a detective is gritty and bleak. You aren't dealing with happy endings and you're dealing with the cold hard truth. Sure, every now and again, you'll get an easy case. The missing kid who just so happens to be at a friend's house or the argument turned bad where the bullet just so happens to miss every vital organ. Open and shut. Everyone goes home with a smile on their face or at least the life they were given. But that's not the norm. Something you learn quickly from this job is how different we all are. Each person taking you down a wholly unique path filled with their own challenges. Each time you try and understand the person you're dealing with, but most of the time, you never really do. Even if you solve a case, you've opened doors that can never be shut. And just like that, you're now involved in the lives of people that extend beyond a court date. Someone doesn't stop being dead after a guilty verdict. A woman doesn't stop crying after her abuser is sentenced. 
and a person doesn't stop being missing just because you moved on to another case. At the end of the day, if you can't cope with being haunted by what will eventually amount to a hell of a lot more than one case, then this job isn't for you. That being said, when the case of a missing girl was casually dropped at my desk one rainy August afternoon, I was less than reluctant to make it a priority. Don't ignore that one, Smith. The woman hovering above me said sternly with her finger firmly pressed down on the stack of paper. Detective Evelyn Joss had been hard at me from day one. I'm not quite sure what had started our rivalry, but from the second we had our first conversation, I knew that she had a whole life of being a hard ass. Naturally, being someone who likes to push people's buttons, it made her fun to mess with, which in turn forced her to push me harder. But this time around, I could tell she wasn't in any sort of mood to play. Chief wants you on this case immediately. He said if you don't make progress with it, then he's coming for me, which means I'm coming for you. I looked at the papers on my desk and quickly thumbed through them, scratching at my short beard as I went. A missing kid. Okay, I see why he wants me on this. But why in the heck does he think I need a babysitter? She shrugged. Not sure. Chief is just really set on this thing at getting looked at. As I started to skin the documents, I quickly realized there wasn't much to go on. Faye Mizuki was your typical 15-year-old girl. From what I saw, not much stood out, and that was the problem. All that we really had to go on was some interviews with known acquaintances, some known locations, and statements from the family. This was odd. Why would a girl who lived an otherwise boring routine life just disappear? I didn't feel like she seemed like the type of girl to run away independently. So it appeared obvious one of two things was true. Everything we knew about her was wrong. Or she was taken. It wasn't much to go on, but bowling down a disappearance to one of two scenarios immediately cut out many potential dead ends. And by the next day, I planned to have it down to one. I could feel determination starting to fill my body. In response, I took a big gulp of the cold coffee sitting near my computer. As I began to furiously type away, as I could feel inspiration starting to make the neurons of my brain fire like an old western shootout. Evelyn had seen me make this change before. As soon as she noticed me going into work mode, she turned away without a word and let me get down to brass tacks. I think I even caught what I thought was a slight smile as she let me do my thing. And in doing my thing, I found exactly what I was looking for. Absolutely nothing. Even when doing a deep dive into her immediate and extended family, there wasn't a single iota of noticeable information. These people were spotless. Not even so much as a traffic ticket to speak of. When I reviewed some of the documents I had been given in more detail, I noticed a trend in those interviewed. They had all come from spots that Faye was known to frequent, but the things said were all practically the same. Quiet, polite, never stuck out from a group of girlfriends. If I didn't know any better, I would think they didn't even know she existed. It almost seemed like they were just talking about some generic teenager. 
The only person who had slightly more to say was the owner of an Italian place. He mentioned that she and her family visited the restaurant a lot and that Faye seemed really close to her parents. Unlike a typical teen, Faye engaged them. She wanted to have a close relationship with her folks and never took the opportunity to be out with them for granted by being on her phone. If only all kids felt like that, but I digress. Either way, this was all useful information. I had an idea who Faye was. While I would still do my due diligence on the facts, I knew what I was looking for. I was looking for the thinner person that stuck out from the blandness. However, I also knew that I wasn't going to do that by talking to the people accustomed to seeing that side of her. By the next morning, I was drinking warm coffee in the office of her principal, Miss Thompson. I could immediately tell that Miss Thompson was a no-nonsense type of person. She came off as mean-spirited. Her sharp tongue betrayed the image of the short, almost sweet-looking old lady one could easily mistake her for. I already talked to the cops. I don't know why you're here, she said, waving me off. And I understand that, Miss Thompson, I started. But I would just like to ask some follow-up questions, if you don't mind. This must have offended her because she stopped typing at her computer and gave me an are you serious type of look. I could tell through her dark lenses that she was rolling her eyes, and she made it a point to say her next words slowly. I don't know what happened. I know your people are slow, but that should be pretty straightforward. Being a black detective in a very non-black area, you always expect some people to treat you differently, but her uh, bluntness caught me off guard. As much as I wanted to cuss her out right there and remind her that I didn't give a crap that she's an educator because I'm still a cop, I knew that I needed her information. I instead opted to smile and forced out a fake laugh. Look, I don't really want to take up much of your time. If you say you don't know anything about her disappearance, then fine. But surely you know if she's been into any trouble. Maybe some kind of altercation with a teacher or a classmate. To her credit, she actually stopped to think for a moment. Her history teacher, Mr. Berkeley, he's mentioned her name a couple of times, and I thought it was odd because she's never had issues in any other class. Maybe he knows something. Bingo. A hint at a break from her norm. Then when could I see him? I asked. If you come back at lunch, he should be in room 2105. She turned her attention back to her computer. Her hand waved frantically towards the door, signifying that she had done her part in sending me in the right direction and that I needed to leave her alone. I took the hint and walked towards the exit, but I couldn't help myself from stopping at the door. You know, I was always the fastest kid in my grade. Though when you're in your 30s, I guess you're not as fast as you used to be. But I would imagine that's something you figured out many decades ago. Tragic. And with that, I slipped out of the door, only glancing back to see the look of pure anger she had plastered on her face. When 12 o'clock rolled around, I returned from my rendezvous with Mr. Berkeley. I strolled into the messy classroom and noticed the balding shorter man tucked away behind his desk, 
with a stack of papers neatly placed beside him. I waited for a moment by the door, but it wasn't until I intentionally cleared my throat to get his attention did he break from his work to look up at me. Whoa, he said startled, jumping a bit in his seat. I apologize, I didn't see you there. You must be the asshole detective I was told needed to talk to me. Asshole detective, I chuckled. Maybe Monday through Sunday, but other than that, I swear I'm the nicest guy in the world. He laughed and the mood seemed to lift a bit. What can I do for you, uh, Detective, um, Smith? Uh, Detective Smith? I said, pulling out a chair from a nearby desk, while opening up the notes app on my phone. You're Faye Mizuki's history teacher, right? I'm assuming you've heard the news of her disappearance. Is there anything of note that you can tell me about her? He thought for a moment. No, not really. Faye's a pretty good student, does all her work, shows up on time, gets good grades. All of that would seem to make her better than just a pretty good student, yeah? I heard from my sources that she's a straight-A student, so surely she's better than that. He shrugged. I suppose... Nothing major separates Faye from the great students, in my opinion. Nothing major? Well, then tell me about the minor stuff. Uh, really just some disciplinary stuff. She's very talkative in class, and I've had to have a few conversations with her about being disruptive. Everything I've read about her says that she's a quiet girl. It seems a little odd that she would be a chatterbox in your class all of a sudden. Not that I don't believe you, but things change when your best friend is in your class. Best friend? Do you have the name of this person? Yeah, Hannah Sterling. 16, blonde hair, freckles, green eyes. I think she swims with Faye on the water polo team. Interestingly enough, Hannah hadn't been in any of the reports that I had read. How could we have missed a best friend? I wanted to push further on this fact, but as a 50-year-old teacher, Mr. Berkeley didn't have much insight into the personal lives of these kids. Hannah Sterling, I pushed. From what I've come to understand, she's not someone that I know of to be in Faye's main group of friends, and yet they're constantly chatting it up. They seem pretty friendly in class, and that's all I can say, he said. Whether or not they hang out outside of it isn't really my place of expertise, but I always assumed they were close. The well of information there was running dry. After a couple more questions, I thanked Mr. Berkeley for his help and proceeded to make my way back to the car. On my way out, I sent text messages to my officers back at the station to find me all the info they could on Hannah Sterling. I also asked them to check up on the people we had interviewed to see if they had recognized the name or the description. By the time evening rolled around, I had exactly what I needed. A location and all the pertinent background knowledge to break the case wide open. Hannah actually had quite a lot of history. Drug dealing running away, multiple suspensions from school, and a long list of other minor offenses. She was a young girl on the wrong path. Not exactly someone you would expect Faye to be associated with. And apparently, she wasn't someone her family expected her to be associated with either. 
From a follow-up interview that one of my officers did, I learned that Faye and Hannah were friends in middle school, but Faye's parents had disapproved of the friendship and had thought the two split ways. Even Faye's close friends had no idea that the two were friendly. This was the abnormality, the thing that stuck out from the blindness, and likely the key to where to find Faye. At seven on the dot, I was knocking on her door and flashing a badge. Having seen this kind of thing many times before, Hannah's parents didn't put up much of a fuss when I said I needed to speak with her privately. In the next couple of minutes, the young girl was sitting across from me in her living room, seemingly trying to make my heart stop with her stare. Obviously, the last thing she wanted to do was to be talking to the police, even with her friend's life potentially at stake. Whatever it is, I didn't do it, she said with no hint of emotion in her voice. She simply stared forward at me with her arms crossed. Well, I guess my work here is done then, I joked. There wasn't even a hint of a smile from the girl in response. I cleared my throat and followed up. Right, look, all I care about is finding Faye, and I have reason to believe that you can help me with that. She scoffed. Why? I didn't have anything to do with what happened. Maybe you should go look for the person that's actually responsible. Obviously, I wasn't getting through and needed to try a different strategy. Hey, that's fair. Look, I believe you, and I'm not here to get you into any trouble. I just want to know some things that I don't think other people are willing or able to tell me. Whatever you say won't be used against you, but I need your help. And how do I know that you're not just saying that to get me to talk? Because you have my word that if you get caught for anything in the future, I'll be in your corner defending you. I know you've had a rough life and it would surely behoove you to have someone on the inside that can vouch for you if you work with me, yeah? She raised an eyebrow at this and thought for a moment. I could tell my proposal piqued her interest. I still don't know how I can help you. I quickly pulled out my notes app and replied, All I need you to do is lead me down the right path. First, why don't Faye's parents know about you if you two are still friends? She shrugged. We don't really advertise our friendship. Faye is very much a goody-goody, and it would be bad for her image if we were seen hanging out. But I do really care about her, and we have fun together. So, you would say that you make it work behind closed doors? Well, I guess. We see each other on the weekends when she's not with her other friends. Mostly in secret spots I know of around the area. And where would those spots be? A slight laugh escaped her, and I could see her body start to relax. I'm definitely not telling you that, cop. It doesn't matter, though. She wouldn't be there anyway. Faye is terrible with directions. Plus, she wouldn't have a reason to visit without me. Still, though, a young person breaking from her boring life is exciting. I would imagine she wasn't just hanging out. I would think she would also be looking to you for other, uh, new things into her life. Well, uh, I mean, she started smoking and drinking a little bit recently. Really, you're underage girls. Where on earth are you getting the drugs from? Weed comes from a lot of places, 
she said with a slight smile. I can't say exactly. The alcohol is usually brought by this guy we've been smoking with. A third player in all of this. I whispered to myself. I leaned in for more details and asked. A guy that you've been smoking with. Where'd you meet him and what's his name? We just know some of the same people. I think his name is like Walter something. 17, tall, pale skin. Dark circles under his eyes like he hadn't slept well in weeks. I think he goes to one of the schools around here. Well, did he and Faye talk a lot? Faye talked about him a little bit to me, and I thought there was some chemistry there, but nothing I really ever looked into. After about a half hour more of asking standard questions and exchanging phone numbers, I left with my mind made up. The threads were leading me to this Walter kid. Something in my gut told me he knew exactly where Faye was, and one way or another, I was going to get that information out of him. The next day in the office was a mad rush of writing reports and trying to do my research on just who this kid could be. But going off of a name and a vague description wasn't enough. There wasn't anything in our databanks that helped me. And I was afraid that I would have to go through every kid with the first name beginning with W in the area. Frustrated, I decided to step outside to take a break. But before I had reached the door, I bumped into Detective Jaws. Smith, she said a little too forcefully. How's your case coming along? It's been a couple of days and you know what they say about 48 hours. You're not slacking, are you? I shook my head and threw my hands up. I'm making progress. I think I'm close to it. There's just one little detail to solve and after that, I'm off to the races. She leaned against the wall and sipped her coffee. Oh, and what's that? Some kid named Walter something. 17, tall, pale skin, dark hair. Circles under his eyes. Apparently he's from the area, but I have no idea where to find this guy. She thought for a moment and snapped her fingers. Without a word, she ran off. A couple of minutes later, she came back in motion for me to follow. A couple of the officers were sitting around a computer with a picture pulled up of a rather rough-looking young boy. This is the guy you're looking for, detective. The younger of the two officers asked in a distinctly New York accent. Uh, we've had some calls about him before. He's run away from home a couple times and we had to bring him back. Nothing else on the rap sheet, though. Walter Crane is the full name. Hoping it was who I was looking for, I snapped a picture of the boy and sent it to Hannah. Within minutes, I had a response confirming that it was indeed the same kid. My eyes grew wide reading her text. Immediately, I grabbed the address of Walter's school from the guys at the computer and bolted out the front door, shouting that I owed them big on the way out. I made the drive from the station to the school in record time. In what felt like seconds, I went from demanding that the principal grab Walter to sitting down with this kid in a private room. Right off the bat, I could tell that he was nervous. I didn't even have to say Faye's name for him to know precisely why we were sitting across from each other. Without saying a word, I wanted him to know that I was sizing him up. But it was apparent that I didn't have to do much to intimidate him. It was like Hannah said. It looked like he hadn't slept in weeks. He was skinny, smelled like cigarettes, and struggled to make eye contact. 
But even beyond that, his general unkempt look, loose-fitting clothes, and pale skin bellied a kid that was obviously struggling with something pretty serious. There were no visible bruises to indicate that there was abuse, but that didn't mean there wasn't anything going on. Either way, something was deeply wrong. I, um, I don't know why I'm here, he eked out. Maya wasn't in the mood for games. Look, kid, a girl is missing, and I have reason to believe that you know something. Oh, why me? I sighed. And tell me how you know Hannah Sterling. And don't lie either. I've talked to enough people to know the truth here. And I swear it's going to look awful for you if you start jerking me around. He fell for the bluff. Okay, okay. She sold me drugs. What kind of drugs? I demanded. Um, just weed. He replied softly. Did you ever smoke weed with Hannah? Sometimes, yeah. Why? Was there ever anybody else there? And if so, then what was their name? Yeah, a girl named Faye. Bingo. Did you ever talk to Faye outside of smoking with Hannah? He started to choke up. His hand twitched for a moment, and I could see he was debating whether or not to come clean. I realized that I might have been pushing too hard and pulled back the intensity a bit. Look, Walter, I know this is hard, and I don't want you to worry about getting into trouble or anything. I leaned in closer and put my hand on his shoulder. But right now, I don't care about any of the other stuff. I just need to find out where Faye is. Please help me do that. He shook his head. You, you don't understand. I... You won't believe me. I leaned back in my chair and took on a softer tone. Try me. Start from the beginning. He took a deep inhale before a slow exhale and nodded. I've been dealing with some stuff. No, something... This thing has kept me up for the past couple of months. I've been really scared. I... It said it would take me to its home, just like it took other people. Unless I gave it something to take my place. It visited every night. I knew it was getting closer and closer to taking me. It reminded me every damn day of what it wanted. I started buying weed from Hannah to help me sleep. And that's where I met Faye. She's a really nice girl, but really naive. I could tell that she liked me a bit, and I I used that. I'm so sorry I did, but I needed someone to take my place. I told her that I knew a cool spot that we could hang out at, so I drove her out there, and that's where you'll find her, at its home. I promised that I didn't hurt her, but you have to see None of this made any sense to me. I couldn't tell if Walter was committing a serious crime, maybe with an accomplice or if he was hinting at something else entirely. I must have not even noticed how long I was in my own thoughts while taking notes, because before I knew it, the kid was rocking back and forth, crying about how sorry he was. I tried calming him down, but to no avail. 
The best I could do was wait until his panic attack was over. But even then, he profusely stated how he never hurt Faye, and that he was just doing what he could to survive. The kid was spooked out of his mind, and suddenly his appearance made more sense. This was caused by stress and a hell of a lot of it. Eventually, I managed to get an address for the place and got all of Walter's contact info, telling him that I would be in touch. On the way out, I took a few minutes to try and convince the principal that she should send Walter home for the day. For whatever happened, he was a teenage boy under a lot of stress. I had no qualms about bringing him to justice, if and when the time came. But I also felt sympathy for whatever he was going through. She seemed to respect my suggestion, but I'm not sure if she ever actually did anything. Either way, that was a secondary concern. At the moment, I had my location about a 45-minute drive away, and nothing was going to stop me from getting there. I jumped in my car and burned rubber towards the address. My attention never once broke from the road ahead of me, and my mind was solely focused on finding Faye. Not a single stray thought entered my brain. When I finally arrived at the nearly dilapidated house out in the middle of a random plot of land surrounded by nothing, I truly started to fear the worst. By the looks of it, it was an old abandoned two-story farmhouse. I'd done this job long enough to know that, with nothing around for miles, it'd be the perfect spot for a murder. Even standing a reasonable distance from the old farmhouse, I could catch a whiff of a pungent odor. As I walked closer to it, the stench only intensified. What in the world? I thought to myself as I went for the door. It only took a slight nudge for it to open, but what I saw inside, I... Jesus, it was horrible. The light from outside poured in through the various holes in the farmhouse, illuminating the various bodies strewn about. Most of them appeared to be animals, but some were undoubtedly human, and most were very young. What kind of sick person would do something like this? I thought. I pulled my gun and shouted for whoever was there to come out slowly with their hands up. I waited for about 30 seconds, with no response from anywhere in the building. I shouted again. Still, no response. But despite the silence, I knew I wasn't alone. To this day, I don't know what force drove me to do it, but I had the indescribable urge to look up. For a moment, I thought I saw what appeared to be a massive, four-legged spider scurry from the ceiling into one of the rooms on the second floor. My brain couldn't process what I had actually seen. If that was a spider, it was easily as long as a polar bear, and had to be at least nine feet, with legs easily matching the length of its body. But the more I thought about it, the more I questioned. What spider had a smooth skin with a head of long black human hair? Gun pointed in front of me, I ran up a set of dangerously old stairs and followed the thing into the room I had seen it enter. What stood before me was most definitely not a spider. It was a woman. 
She did stand at approximately the nine-foot height I had assumed when I first got a glance. Her body was real thin, with loose hanging gray skin and arms that dragged behind her on the ground. But it wasn't just the impossible proportions of her body that terrified me to my core. It was looking at her eyeless face and rubbery lips, the corners of which drooped far past her chin in a permanently distorted frown. Inside her mouth, it appeared as though she was sucking on what I thought was a skull, like a cartoonishly sized jawbreaker. Her long gray tongue wrapped entirely around it, and milky, viscous saliva dripped from her mouth as she moved it around. I wanted to gag at the sight of her. My body was frozen in fear. I didn't know what to do or how to react. For a moment, we just stared at each other until I heard moaning. My eyes darted from the monster of a woman to the source of the sound. In the same room was a young girl, one that I recognized, Faye Mizuki. She was lying on the ground, her eyes rolling into the back of her head. It looked as though she was covered in dirt. I finally found her, but I knew this thing wouldn't just let me take her with me. I had to make a quick decision. It was now or never. I fired off multiple rounds into the thing and rushed towards Faye to grab her and get the hell out. But only after taking a couple steps forward, I found myself flying backward and smashing back onto the ground. Despite her lack of apparent muscle, she was incredibly strong. I tried scrambling for my gun, but she had snatched it where it had fallen beside me and flung it into some dark corner. Now, I was utterly defenseless. By the time I had realized what happened, I felt the woman's ice-cold fingers double-wrapped around my throat. She carried me to the first floor and slammed me against the splintering wall. I struggled to breathe against her might, and as my vision started to blur, I could see her puffy gray face come close to mine. The two words she uttered through rotten breath in her deep voice chilled me to the bone. Get out. I knew she wasn't going to tell me again, and realistically, I had no means of objecting. I took one glance at the room on the second floor and saw Faye looking down at me with tears in her eyes. Man, what did I do? I would like to say that I stayed in like a good cop. I fought against the odds to do the right thing. But no. One more glance at the figure towering above me and I... I ran. I ran like a coward with his tail between his legs. The fear of the moment and of that thing was too much. I didn't even look back at the farmhouse until I was safely locked in my car and calling for backup. The desperation of my voice as I begged them to save me from that monster was apparent. It took a while for them to arrive. All the while, I was trying to process just what had happened. When the officers arrived, I broke down what had happened, and they just looked at me in disbelief. When I realized they didn't actually believe me, I just told them to shoot anything that moved in there except for the little girl. I watched as they disappeared into the house, but no sense of comfort came over me. Moments later, I saw a familiar vehicle pull up beside me, 
and a gravelly voice yelling out my name. And turning to the large figure behind me, I asked, Chief, what are you doing here? He fumbled in his pockets for a bit and then pulled out a lighter and cigarette, setting the tip ablaze as he answered, I wanted to see this one through, personally. You look like crap, Smith. What happened? Flashbacks of that horrible thing crossed my mind, and I shook my head, repulsed at the thoughts. I, I found the girl and, uh, something else. Look, everything will be in my report tomorrow, but when the officers kill whatever the heck that thing is in there, you need to see it with your own eyes. He stared at me for a moment, puffing on his cigarette. I couldn't read him. All I knew was that the look on his face wasn't disbelief, but something else entirely. Pity, maybe. I'll never know. Either way, he played off my fears and simply said, Go home, Smith. We'll handle things from here. You've worked hard on the case, and it looks like you've been beaten up a bit. Detective Joss will be on the scene soon to tie up loose ends. I was shot and found myself speaking at a little louder of a tone than I had expected. What? No. I have to see this thing through. I have to make sure she's okay. The look in his eye implicated he wasn't going to argue with me. No, Smith. You're going home. We will take care of everything. You have my word. I wanted to fight it. I wanted to scream and yell that this was BS, but I knew my place, and I knew I didn't have any standing to force the issue. Reluctantly, I got in my car and drove home, mad at the world. That night was awful. I couldn't stop thinking about that monster that I had come face to face with, or the conversation with Walter that now made complete sense. The thing was hunting him and it was smart enough to get him to sacrifice someone else in his place. I wouldn't be able to sleep either if I knew that thing was coming for me. Hell, it probably explained him running away too. He was probably trying to get as far away from it as possible. Still, he knew he would never succeed until either it took him or until it took someone else. But why? Why not just take the kid? Why did it matter who it was if it was just hungry? Did it just like to mess with people? Did it have some kind of sick mind that matched its even sicker appearance? I wish I knew. The next day, I tried to keep a sense of normalcy. My morning was fine, albeit I scared myself a couple of times, thinking that lady had found itself in my house. I threw myself into my work the next day, finishing my report in record time. I wanted to hand it to the chief personally in part so that I could ask him about what had went down the previous day. But in response, he simply asked me to close and lock the door behind him. Sit down, Smith. He said calmly, and I did. Look, I appreciate you doing the work you did. You're a fine cop. Really fine. But here's what's going to happen. I know you. You're an honest guy. You want to do things the right way. And your report is going to reflect that, isn't it? I, yes. I replied cautiously. I respect that. But this report on my desk doesn't exist. He pulled out a stack of papers from his desk. 
This is actually the report that you mailed me today and handed to me in person. It says that you talked to the Walter kid. He told you that Faye had tried some new drugs, found a spot to use them in, and been killed by an unknown assailant, and that the farmhouse she was using had been burned down, likely by a homeless squatter on accident. That sounds more realistic, doesn't it? What was he saying to me? My blood was boiling and it took everything in my power not to rush the man right there and crack him across the jaw. Sir, that's not at all what happened. The girl was alive when I saw her. There were armed officers who wanted to take her. He nodded. And what's Smith? They went to fight a creature of the night like superheroes. You were there. There's no way they didn't see. There's no way you didn't see. I was beginning to crack. He sighed and leaned back in his chair. I was there and I did see a lot. Look, it doesn't do either of us good to lie. Smith, there are things out there. Things that we are completely incapable of dealing with. So we just run and hide? I snapped. Isn't that what you did? He calmly replied. I... He was right. His words stung like a salted dagger to the gut. What could I even say? But that's not what we do. I was wrong. He exhaled loudly. Let's say that people believed us. We don't live in a world where anyone could ever accept the things that go bump in the night are real, even if we say it's true. We'd get looked at as the crazies who aren't doing their job. But let's pretend like that's not the case. Where do we go from there? Arrest something like her. Keep her in jail with all the other criminals. Smith, do you think burning down the farmhouse killed her? No, it just scared her off. We literally don't have the capacity to deal with things like that. So, what's the next best move? Stop the panic. Move those things to more obscure locations if we can but otherwise operate as if things are normal and move on. We focus on the real crimes that we can deal with. I was speechless. My own chief was telling me to just forget that a family had lost a daughter because he didn't think there was anything we could do to help. The only thing left to do was ask. Did you know? He went silent for a moment and said, I had a hunch. I've seen cases like this before. After talking to some other counties about similar disappearances, the signs pointed to this maybe being the case. When your frantic call came through, I wanted to confirm it for myself. Smith, you did good work. This was a problem we needed to address for a while. And I... And if she strikes again, I interrupted. Then we figure something else out, I suppose. Look... You're going to be on some easy cases for a while. You've earned the break. I don't want you seeing anything else traumatic, even by normal standards, for a while. But I'm demanding that you play ball on this one. Just trust me. Without saying a word, I nodded and walked out. I never said a peep to anyone. I never even spoke about it to the officers that I knew were there. Little did I know, I would eventually become a trusted person in these types of cases. Someone good enough to investigate and trustworthy enough not to say anything. 
it was hard to live with, knowing the truly messed up and outright terrifying parts of our world. The creatures we live with daily do horrible things, while the people sworn to protect us just stand by and do nothing. It was a significant source of conflict and eventually led to me leaving. But these stories will always stick with me, forever burned into my memory as genuinely defining moments of my life. When the time comes, I'll share more of these tales, but for now, just remember, when you hear something go bump in the night, don't think for a second that it can't reach out and drag you away. Stay safe, everyone.